Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Bonnie, I'm looking at the uh, chart of WTI crude here. Looking back just since uh, during the month of September, uh, WTI has gone from about $43 a barrel down to where we are today at $37.65 a barrel. So quite a move down. We talk oil, we talk supply models, we talk demand models. And when we do that, there's no one better to chat with than Stephen Short, president of the Short Group. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, this is a commodity that had been trading in north of $40 a barrel pretty consistently. Now we've pulled back to under 38. What's going on in the global oil market? We have to keep in mind all commodity markets trade in seasonal blocks. So, of course, back in the spring, we had that, that debacle with oil prices going uh, negative. Then we snapped back and we stayed in that 40, low 40, mid $40 range for the entire summer. Now, the problem was the summer is your peak demand season for oil, for gasoline. And on that snapback from the debacle, we only got as high as to where we were right before prices tanked. So we couldn't get much higher, and we stayed in a very tight range when demand historically is at its highest. But of course, this is not a normal year. Demand for crude oil averaged 2.5 to 2.7 million barrels a day below normal. Now that we have the Labor Day holiday, it's September. We now go into that next seasonal block. We're going from the peak demand season to the nadir of, of the demand season. So over the next two months, as refineries go into their maintenance season, they buy fewer barrels. We'll see demand drop by an additional 900,000 to a million barrels a day. So it's clearly a demand story right now. The U.S. producer has done a great job taking 2 million barrels a day of production out of the market. But as I said before, it's not good enough because demand is still greater than 2 million barrels a day. So the producer has done a great job, but they're going to have to continue. And it's all about the demand right now. And we're going into the weakest demand part of the year. How, in the longer run, does China impact things? China, we know, wants to increase its reserves of crude beginning in 2021. Does that impact U.S. producers at all? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, The U.S. now is, of course, a a burgeoning uh, uh, exporter of crude oil. And in fact, since last October, five out of every nine weeks, the U.S. has been a net exporter. That is petroleum products, which is not news. The United States has been a net exporter of petroleum products, gasoline, diesel, for a number of years now. What has changed is over the year, we're now an exporter of crude oil. So five out of nine weeks, we have more oil going out of the United States than coming in. And of course, with China, a lot of that oil is destined for those markets. Oil at these levels is competitive for the Chinese consumer. So that's certainly when we we transition back into the demand season, we'll see a a, a peak uh, later in this year as we get into the holidays. Then we'll go into another decline in demand through the first quarter. And then we, we look ahead to the winter and demand picks up again. So clearly out in the long run, China certainly is a significant uh, force supportive of U.S. energy production. Stephen, aside from the seasonal qualities or or, um, variabilities, is there a sense, do you have a sense that demand for oil post-pandemic will in fact be structurally lower? Yes, absolutely. I think this is the way we've been going in a number of years. 
the oil market is clearly a, a twilight industry as we make greater um, uh, strides for technology, uh, electric hybrids, so forth, battery storage. Uh, clearly, this is the, the, the market was moving there naturally, especially when you look at, look, I'm a dinosaur. I'm, I'm, I'm in my 50s, uh, but my children, all of our children, uh, they, they want, they're, they're making the push. That's where your next market segment is for the next generation. So clearly, we were already moving in that direction. And I think what we've seen now in the pandemic, I think that will even uh, further it along at a quicker pace. Stephen, how many more bankruptcies are we going to see or what kind of consolidation are we going to see before the pandemic is over? Uh, absolutely. So uh, when we had our original downturn in oil prices in 2014, 2015, and then followed again earlier this year, all of the concern was for the smaller shale producer. But now we're starting to see some of the big boys uh, in the room. They're struggling. Uh, uh, you know, the latest news being Exxon. Are they or are they not going to uh, cut the dividend? How many employees are they going to lay off? Now, I'm not saying the big guys are going uh, going down the tubes, but certainly the smaller producer uh, I think we've, we've, we've seen the bankruptcies already. We're, we're seeing consolidation. And as we take, and I'm fearful, we take another leg down during this, the nadir of demand over the next two months. We see oil back into the mid to low 30s, potentially back into the 20s. And certainly that's going to hasten uh, another, I think, round of consolidation in this industry. And of course, we continue to get inventory reports, a couple of them per week. So we will keep a very, very close eye on oil prices right now. Still in New York, below $40 a barrel. Our thanks very much to Stephen Shork coming to us all the way from Villanova, Pennsylvania. We're always thrilled to have the editor of the Shork Report on. So it appears that some employees at J.P. Morgan Chase may have done some very naughty things. It's really quite a disturbing story. And Michelle Davison, Sridhar Natarajan investigated and found that J.P. Morgan found some of its employees improperly applied for and received COVID relief money that was intended for legitimate U.S. businesses. So, Michelle Davis, welcome and thanks for a phenomenal story. Please give us some of the details. Yeah, so J.P. Morgan earlier this week surprised a lot of folks when they sent out a memo to all 256,000 of their workers saying that they had found instances in which customers had misused government relief programs and they said that they were probing employees' involvement in that. And this memo earlier in the week didn't specify exactly what employees had done, but a source confirmed to us late yesterday that J.P. Morgan found that uh, employees had some of its employees had improperly applied for and received funds as part of the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, or EIDL for short. That program is different from the PPP program that has gotten uh, a lot more press coverage, um, you know, the Small Business Administration's program that uh, provided forgivable loans to businesses. Through the EIDL program, businesses could basically get grants of $1 to $10,000 um, as long as they applied directly through the SBA. And with this program, uh, companies didn't have to apply through banks. The money was just dispersed directly to the applicants. The only requirement was that they had a bank account. And so what we found was that JP Morgan discovered this fraud because it turns out that some of their employees had fraudulently received this money and it had been deposited into their checking accounts, into their personal JP Morgan checking accounts. And so JP Morgan discovered it because they were on the alert to, to look out for fraud in this program. These people have now been let go, but we understand that J.P. Morgan has found 
a ton of fraud um, among its customer base across uh, all of the government relief programs that were rolled out uh, because of COVID, not only PPP, but also EIDL, as as we were just talking about, and uh, also through unemployment benefits. So, Michelle, is there any, are these just random employees within the sprawling J.P. Morgan complex, or is there some kind of systematic uh, issue here? So what we understand is that the employees that participated in this were not acting as agents of the bank. It's, it's not like they were, you know, people in charge of applying, of approving PPP loans and, you know, they knowingly allowed fraud to happen. This seems like employees that were just, randomly scattered across the bank that saw an opportunity to get money, basically free money out of the EIDL program and, you know, applied for and received uh, this money. Um, we also understand that of the fraud J.P. Morgan has found so far, and they're, they're still working with authorities right now to uh, monitor checking accounts just, you know, to see if there's any suspicious behavior, suspicious amounts of money hitting people's checking accounts or, or you know, being used to purchase Lamborghinis or what have you. Um, it's our understanding that all of that that they're looking at right now, of that only a small percentage has been tied back to employees. Right. In the memo sent out to staff on Tuesday, J.P. Morgan said it identified conduct by customers that didn't meet its principles and may even be illegal and that some employees had fallen short on ethical standards too. However, for this story, a spokeswoman declined to comment. Do we know roughly how many actual employees took EIDL funds, Michelle? Do you have any idea whether this was just a small number that, you know, may have taken $1,000 or $2,000 and will be taken care of immediately when they're identified i'm sure by jp morgan or if it's if it's actually a lot lot more widespread than that at this point we don't know we know that it's several um but that's as much as we know uh the one bright spot is that the eidl program which seems to have been the most heavily abused um in terms of fraud uh the money Ran, it ran out of money in the middle of July, so it doesn't seem like, you know, there's a chance that more fraud is going to be committed. It's just there might be more fraud detected at this point. Um, so, Michelle, we, I, you, you mentioned that or you reported that uh, they, the bank had fired these employees. Is there, What's been the overall response from the institution here? Uh, so, my understanding is that J.P. Morgan in disclosing to employees all 256 global 256,000 global employees in disclosing this they went against the grain uh you know you don't normally see a bank telling people you know our some of our employees may have done illegal things and a lot of our customers have done illegal things and what we understand is that the bank's leaders kind of made a, a calculation where they thought okay this could hit our reputation by disclosing this but the view was that it would it made more sense to tell employees to be alert for fraud so that they could help catch it um, than just staying silent. So that is that explains some of why they did this. Yeah. So so according to your source, the bank does uh, you know has already fired people that it believes improperly tapped the money. Correct, Michelle. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. I understand that there's still. Yep. They're, they're still investigating, so there could be more people fired. But at this point, the people that have been confirmed to have committed fraud, they have been let go. 
Michelle, thank you so much for that. We really appreciate this uh, excellent reporting. Uh, Michelle Davis, finance reporter for Bloomberg News. Just a crazy story, Vani. Uh, I guess there's so much money sloshing around there that there's bound to be fraud throughout the system. But uh, again, when you see it at the bank level, it's a little Yeah, I mean, it's, it's terribly sad. It's very, very disturbing. It takes away grants and loans from people who really needed it as opposed to people who were employed, therefore right. presumably didn't also have a small business on the side or need it. And it's just it's just terrifying. Well, let's start with the U.S. economic data. Plenty to talk about in Europe today as well. But this morning we got initial jobless claims coming in a little more than expected. 884,000 continuing claims, much higher, 13.385 million. And we also got PPI data, a little higher than expected, both for the final demand month over month headline figure and also, you know, ex-food and energy year over year, which rose quite substantially. Let's bring in someone who can make sense of all this for us. Steve Blitz is chief U.S. economist for T.S. Lombard. Steve, can we begin with the PPI data? Because we all know that the labor market is in a terrible way. What does the PPI data say about inflation? Nothing. Um, okay. It says a lot of it says a lot about prices, um, and there's a difference between prices and inflation. And what the PPI is reflecting is shortages and supply chain issues that are still um, kind of getting back online in some cases. In some cases, still disrupted, uh, and you've got a big rush to get back to produce things because you were shut down for a while. So. Um, I, I think of these price changes really as healthy in the sense that this is doing what the Fed prevents the capital markets from doing, which is price changes to direct effort and money and all that uh, in different directions. And that's what a well-functioning market economy does. So, so Steve, what, when you uh, say nothing in terms of inflation, explain to us the PPI X food and energy, so all other goods, producers are paying 0.6% more in August than they were last year. And economists were looking for them to be paying 0.3% more. How is that not more difficult for producers to pay and therefore inflationary? Well, because over time, the prices that they are paying for these inputs will go down as supply chains come back. Uh, on, in addition, uh, you talk about moving those prices forward uh, with high levels of unemployment, uh, where you're continuing to add people to the unemployment rolls in terms of initial well above the prior recession. Uh, then the demand side, uh, broadly speaking, is going to be weak. And so that is not a combination that is going to allow firms to pass through these prices and sustain margins. So their input costs will go down over time as these uh, supply issues change and the demand's not going to be there. And that's why I say it's not inflation. Inflation in this country, you get inflation when you've got a lot of leverage buying going on uh, to buy real goods. And uh, that kind of leverage is what, is, which is what the Fed's been trying to create for the last and odd years, uh, that's when you start to get a real inflation. Uh, this is just price changes. Prices are up yeah. now. Prices can go down. All right, Steve, let's uh, switch gears a little bit. Uh, more data this morning out. Uh, jobless claims uh, came in at 884,000. The expectation consensus was 850,000. 
give us your sense of kind of where we are in the jobs market. It seems like we're, we're at this stubbornly high level uh, of jobless claims. Yeah, and as I mentioned just before, I think 680,000 or something was the peak month in January of 2009 in the last recession. So that just tells you how high this initial claims number really is. Uh, and that was 10% unemployment. Now, you've got two job markets, and that's what makes these gross macro numbers so difficult to discern. You've got the people who were temporarily laid off back in the spring, and about half of them are back on the job. As the reopenings continue, I would expect more people to get back on the job, and that's all a very, very positive uh, event. By the same token, there is an emerging recession as firms recalibrate their expectations for growth going forward, look to build back cash lost in Q2, all sorts of things. And the number of people who are unemployed and say their jobs have been permanently lost is up over 4 million. It jumped in August. Uh, If you go back to April, that huge number of people got unemployed, 100% of that was people who said their job loss was temporary. What I have been saying since April and still saying and watching is the permanent job loss because that's the number that reflects an underlying recessionary environment that as the reopenings start to fade, simply because either everything's reopened or is reopened as much as people feel safe to reopen everything, um, that number and the impact that that number has on spending, et cetera, will begin to dominate the data. So, Steve, what should we be looking for in coming weeks? I mean, obviously, we got the news that indoor dining will start at a quarter capacity in New York City, which hopefully might bring back a few more jobs here and there. But what will the data that you'll be most concentrated on be? Well, right now, the word, unfortunately, it comes every month, right? I think there's all that high-frequency data that tells you that reopenings are continuing, and I think that's, that's great. I'm very happy as a New York City resident. I'm very happy to see 25% at least indoor dining because I'm wondering what all these restaurants are going to do when it gets to be too cold to sit outside and eat. But um, the number to watch every single month is this job losses Uh, permanent job losses and that's really the number and that will and then the second part of that is that as that continues to go watch these forward expectations numbers because the forward expect because those forward expectation numbers never really dipped as one would have expected in a normal recession all right steve thank you so much for joining us got to leave it there steve blitz chief u.s economist for t.s lombard giving us his thoughts on current economic conditions well, just looking at the S&P 500 here, we're off about 7 or 8% off of that recent high of just uh, several days ago. But let's be clear here, we're up over 50% off of that March low. So a tremendous move up in the market despite some recent uh, pullbacks here to get a sense of where we go from here and what the drivers are that we should be focusing on. Let's welcome Michael Scanlon, Portfolio Manager of Manu Life Asset Management based in Boston. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here. So we've had a little bit of a pullback here. Uh, the question is, you know, what's driving it? And how, how do we, what should we really think about it over the next couple of quarters here as it relates to the equity markets? Sure. Well, good morning and thanks for having me. Um, I think that 
after we've seen, as you just referenced, that huge move off of the bottom of 50-plus percent, not surprising at all to see us give a little bit of that back and consolidate some gains, uh, especially when you driver, consider that the majority of this uh, big move that we've seen has been multiple expansion on the S&P 500. So um, I think that while it's been a big move in, in a short amount of time, I wouldn't read too much into the, the more recent results on the market. As it, it, you know, the, the market just doesn't climb to the sky forever. What are you anticipating will be the catalyst for the next move for this market, whether it be up or down? Well, I think it's going to be more driven. I'm really less focused on the the actual move in the market and just more focused on the individual stocks. I mean, it, it, it certainly feels like this has been the best pure stock picking market that we've seen since prior to the financial crisis. Uh, and you've certainly seen differentiation in individual stocks. I mean, a lot of people like to talk about the move in the fangs, but what, what's that really reflective of is a great stock picker's environment. Um, one thing I would keep in mind on the market as you look at it is uh, I talked about before about the multiple expanding. I mean, it's not surprising that the market is trading at very elevated uh, valuations today. And frankly, I would expect that that's going to continue for a very long time, meaning years, as you can no longer fund any liabilities from the fixed income markets after the, the collapse in U.S. interest rates. All right. So where do we go from here? What are some of the sectors that we should be looking at here? Because it appears that the economy, while it's coming back, is coming back very, very slowly, despite the incredible accommodation provided by the Federal Reserve. Yeah, it's been interesting. So this week, there's actually been a few industry conferences, which I've been attending and was on one just right before we came on live here. Um, I think what's interesting is that, you know, heading into this week with a lot of the retailers and uh, consumer staples companies presenting at various conferences, um, uh, frankly, I was expecting to hear more about kind of a late August slowdown as stimulus um, and the enhanced unemployment benefits were unwound. Um, and, and just the slowing in foot traffic at, at stores and those kind of things. But frankly, you haven't heard that from anybody at any of these conferences. Uh, they continue to talk about a solid demand environment, a little bit of the unknown if there isn't another stimulus package passed. Uh, and the other thing they continue to talk a lot about is just um, it concerns around securing enough inventory as some of the supply chains have been disrupted uh, as we saw the depth of COVID uh, earlier this year. Would love your thoughts on the succession plan at City that came out today. Yeah, so I, uh, in the, the John Hancock Balance Fund that I run, we don't own shares of Citigroup. Um, it's uh, the woman that was announced as the CEO. I'm not familiar with her. Um, frankly, a little bit surprised that Michael Corbett is, is retiring so quickly. I mean, I, I don't know that that was on the immediate radar of any shareholder. Um, but obviously, you know, in terms of humanity, a great day that um, she's going to be the first woman running one of these large global banks. How about on the technology front? Give us your latest thoughts on Apple. That's been such a leader in the marketplace. And I guess some concerns that, you know, is there a bear case out there for Apple? Yeah. Uh, so it's funny. I think as we've gone through these iPhone cycles the last 10 years, uh, the 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 price action in Apple stock has become more and more pronounced in terms of the playbook that everybody follows, and that is that you ride up Apple into the announcement of the iPhone update coming, 
Uh, and then after the initial announcement, the stock tends to underperform. I think some of this big run-up that we saw throughout the course of the spring and into the summer uh, was largely attributable to that, as this is expected to be kind of a, a, a benchmark-type cycle with the rollout of the 5G iPhone. Um, but the stock has cooled off, obviously, in the last week or two here. You know, if you wanted to make the bear case argument on Apple, it would be largely around valuation. Right. I mean, the stock has had such a high, a big run that it's now trading in a high 20s multiple. Um, And, uh, you know, when you think about the fact that this is still a company that sells an iPhone every couple of years, you know, if you wanted to be put a bear scare in the stock, that that would be it. Right. Is that it's still cycle dependent um, and, and, and a consumer electronics company. Now, that's not to say that I believe it, but that's what a bear would tell you. Okay, well, we're going to get that event on the 15th, so just early next week to reveal the new watch and also, you know, a a new iPhone cycle. Will it be successful? What are you anticipating? Yeah, I do expect that there's a fair amount of pent-up demand. Uh, You know, the last handful of years, you're certainly seeing an elongation in terms of the the cycle that people actually hold on to their iPhones. So I do think there's there's quite a bit of pent-up demand. Um, I would hedge that a little bit in when you look at where we are from uh, unemployment levels, both domestically and just economic stresses that you're seeing globally. Um, you know, it's a bit more of a stretch for people to run out and spend $1,000 on a new phone. So I think you do have to kind of hedge on it from that front. And I think the other thing is there's still an education process that needs to go on, right? I mean, you've had some of these wireless service providers that have talked up that they're on 5GE Uh, And people might think they have a 5G iPhone. They don't have a 5G iPhone until they have an iPhone with a 5G chip in it. So there is a bit of an education headwind there as well for some less informed consumers. Michael, thank you. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Michael Scanlon, Portfolio Manager from Manulife Asset Management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.